This is a podcast from the Poetry Society. One of the dangers of Western conversation about literature is that so much is unsaid. We create a kind of homogenous society where everybody does the same thing. And uh, we are not homogenous at all. So why pretend to be? I'm Emily Berry, editor of the Poetry Review, and today I'm going to be talking with the poet Ilya Kaminsky, who's currently visiting the UK for the launch of his book, Deaf Republic. We published some earlier drafts of poems from the book in the summer issue of 2016, which I co-edited with Maurice Reardon. In the autumn 2018 issue, we published a beautiful essay by Ilya on the French poet René Char, It Is Never Night When You Die, which is now available to read online. Ilya Kaminsky was born in Odessa, former Soviet Union, in 1977 and arrived in the United States in 1993, where his family were granted asylum. Ilya is the author of Deaf Republic, published in the US by Grey Wolf and just published here by Faber, and Dancing in Odessa, which was published by Tupelo Press in 2004. Among the many books he has co-edited and co-translated are Echo Anthology of International Poetry, published by HarperCollins, and Dark Elderberry Branch, Poems of Marina Zvetaiva, published by Alice James Books. Deaf Republic is currently shortlisted for the Forward Prize for Best Collection and has just been serialised on Radio 4 as Book of the Week, which I think must be a first for a poetry collection, so it's a really exciting precedent. You can read a review of the book by Jifa Benson in the summer 2019 issue of the magazine. So, Ilya, it's really wonderful to meet you, finally. Thank you for joining us. It is wonderful to meet you as well and to be here, just to be in conversation with poet as talented as yourself. <laughs> Truly a pleasure. Thank you, that's lovely. I thought it'd be nice if we could start with one of your poems. So, if you'd like to start by reading one. Here is a poem from the middle of the Republic. It's called When Mama Gala First Protested. When Mama Gala First Protested. She sucks at a cigarette butt and yells to herself, Dear, go home, you haven't kissed your wife since Novo the sailor. Mama Galeana Malinskaya, what would we do if to ride away from our funerals beside you? In a yellow taxi, two windows open, living loaves of bread and the mailboxes of the arrest. Mama Gala Armalinskaya by Avenue Sweat Walls yells Daphnis isn't an illness. It is a sexual position. A young soldier patrolling a curfew whispers. Gala Armalinskaya yells Gala Armalinskaya whip it a lieutenant with a leash of his own patrol duck. And there are 32 persons watching. For a baker in this tit, I'm bringing his sons. On the night like this, God's got an eye on her, but she isn't a spare. In a time of war, she teaches us how to open the door and walk through, which is a true curriculum of schools. I love that line, deafness isn't an illness, it's a sexual position. I think that's my favourite line in the book. I wondered if you could tell us maybe a little bit about the book 
its premise just for listeners who aren't familiar with your work? Well, the book begins with a couple, a pregnant woman and her husband, Sonia and Alfonso, who watch soldiers shoot and kill a young deaf boy at a puppet show at a public gathering. And as a response in protest to this murder, they see the whole town decide to go deaf as a protest. And the protest is coordinated by sign language. This is how the book begins, and it follows the private lives of many citizens in that particular community. And it's, it's kind of set in the form of a play. I wondered how you came to that idea. Is Obviously, it's poems. There's a play aspect to it. There's maybe even a little bit like a novel. Are you influenced by theatre at all? I don't really think in terms of genres, simply because, okay, we are in London right now, and if you ask me what is the greatest epic poem of the 20th century, I would say Mrs. Dalloway. But if you go to school, they'll tell you it's a novel, not a poem, obviously. Yeah. So if I don't think in terms of genres, how do I answer your question? I'll say that I'm a fabulist. I come from East Europe. Uh, from Odessa, Ukraine. So that kind of literary tradition of writers like Isaac Petrovic India, Isaac Babel, and so forth, uh, they really balance the genres together simply because there is no official way to describe reality they live in. You have to find the different method to show what it is that you see. That is a tradition that was not represented in literature. In my case, I'm a refugee, I come from Ukraine, I write in English. So I was trying, obviously, to ask myself, what is it I'm standing for? Who am I? Am I still a boy from Ukraine, or am I an American? I came to the United States in 1993, when I was 16, and I did not speak English. I did begin to write poems in English after some time. But I realized now that I wasn't really writing in English. I was writing in a kind of language of images, my first book, Dancing in Odessa, in which I was kind of trying to find a space in English for that Russian-Ukrainian Jew who I was trying to make a home in American tradition. And that was Dancing in Odessa, and it was published in 2004. After that, I had to ask myself a question. What am I going to do? Am I still going to be going back to that Russian tradition and trying to recreate it in English? Or am I a different person now? Because at that point, in 2004, I have lived in America for 11 years. I was already dating a woman who would become my wife, and she is an American with spoken little at home. So the question of who I am, what does it mean to be a refugee? What would be a genre for a refugee? was very much in my mind, not necessarily in logical terms. I don't think poets think in logical terms. But um, in more touch-as-you-go kind of way. And the book changed forms. The book changed plot. The book changed characters over time. But I kind of like it that way. I kind of like trying to find who it is, what I am, the language, as opposed to coming into language with already established story. That is boring to me. I would rather find something I don't already know. Yeah, I think that's a really beautiful metaphor, maybe, for what poetry 
is it trying to find your way in language when you don't know? Because you wouldn't write a poem if you knew. Don't quote me on it, but I believe it was Brosty who said that poetry is a soul's search for a release in language. That's really lovely. You mentioned the book had gone through numerous drafts. I think I first came across your work around 2015 in The Wolf, the magazine edited by James Byrne and Sandeep Palmer. And it was one of the Mama Gallia poems. And that was what encouraged me to invite you to send work to the Poetry Review. And at that time, you sent me what you said was, it had a note attached to it saying several versions of this manuscript exist. But that was kind of part of the story. That was four years ago. And the book has changed quite a lot. But it's also, it's still very much the essence of what I read then. I just wondered, how did you know when it was ready if you'd been working on it so long? This is a great question, and I'm glad also that you mentioned it well, which is a fantastic journal. It introduced me to so many poets, not just from UK, but from the rest of the world as well. But to answer your question, there are at least three published versions of the book of the story of the book, not necessarily all 70 pages, but separate versions. There is also a puppet play, which which is not included in the book, but it exists. The answer to your question is still pretty much a reflection of what I said. I was trying to find out what it is, a story that would speak both to a Russian-speaking Ukrainian Jew in me and an American in me. And separate versions of it, usually there were up to 15 pages about a complete kind of plot or a draft of a plot in poems that come out were either, to my mind, too Ethiopian or too close on the American side, and I didn't feel like it was me. Deaf Republican's final version, I feel, does speak to both contemporary Ukraine with its war and its denial of war and to contemporary America with its utter crisis and an utter denial of that crisis. I presume the development of the political situation in America was happening alongside your working on the poem. So at the time you started writing it, it would have been very different. Well, that is um, probably something I won't agree with. I think the United States was in crisis ever since white people came to the continent and started killing everybody else. And it hasn't ended. Your problem is that nobody said that they're sorry. Many hundred years later, we still don't have an apology. We have a whole culture that watches murder and acts like it doesn't happen. What we do see now is our most current development, Donald Trump administration, it's the same puppet but he no longer tries to be polite. Before, we had puppets who were polite. That actually brings me to one of my other questions, which was that the book definitely doesn't shy away from issues of culpability in times of war or crisis. So you have the line in one of the poems, at the trial of God, we will ask, why did you allow all this? And the answer will be an echo. Why did you allow all this? I was wondering how you see the role of the poet. Do you see it as a political role? Do you feel like poets have a responsibility to address injustice? 
I think human beings have a responsibility to address injustice. Poetry is a way to express what is human in us, and poetry is an art of language and a responsibility of poets to write well. But if poet is a shitty human being, it shows in the poems. <laughs> I think it is only in America and in Western Europe that people divide poetry into political and not political. Everywhere else in the world, poetry is political, because everything is political. A beggar who is standing in a street corner and asking for 25 cents, for that person, everything is political. For a person at a podium telling you how to live your life, they have a luxury of saying this is political and that's not. A poet is somebody who's trying to find an essence trying to find truth, whatever truth might mean for that person. And the poet is a very private person. I'll never say that poet is supposed to tell you how to live your life. That's not my project at all. I think that poet is a private person who happens to write well enough, beautifully enough, strangely enough, that they can speak privately to many people at the same time. And... Also, when we speak about things like political poetry or what they call poetry of witness and so forth, our culture tends to fetishize the dark parts and negative parts. Uh, we are asked to talk about the tragedy as poets of witness. But what kind of witness is that if you only witness half of human condition. Even in Holocaust, as we all know, there were moments of tenderness, otherwise people wouldn't survive. And if poet doesn't document those, what kind of witness is that poet? And what is interesting in great poets of witness from, say, Czeslav Miosz to Kerlin Porsche, you have so much tenderness. You have so much attention to detail, beautiful detail, lyrical detail. But our culture wants to focus only on the proclamation part. So we misread great poets of witness. We are told to think of it only as political versus non-political. But the world is full of tragedy and full of love, and it has always been. Your book is definitely testament to that. I love the ending with the tomato salad and the sort of bright sky. There's that tension between these beautiful moments in life that make life worth living and setting that alongside all the tragedies of life but I agree that's very important to recognize something really struck me in reading your book it felt like there was a way in which the imagery seemed to sort of merge the bodies of the people and their environment so a lot of the environment is anthropomorphized the ears of town picking up its belly the country runs and helicopters have nostrils and eyes and it felt to me that the sort of world became very tangible, like a body. I felt like the effect of that was to bring the reader into a different sensory relationship with language. So it felt like a feeling experience rather than maybe a hearing one. And I, I read a review of your book on a site called Lit Pub, which discussed your book in terms of its contribution to deaf activism and deaf gain. You end the book with a note that says, the deaf don't believe in silence. Silence is the invention of the hearing. I wondered if that was something you could respond to in any way. There's probably more than one answer to your question, and I'll try to cover them all if I can. First, about the physicality in language. I think it was Lorca who made a phrase that 
probably best response to what you just said. He said, poet is a professor of five senses. He didn't say poet is a professor of creative writing at the university. <laughs> he said five senses. And if you think about poets, our culture considers great poets who move us, poets we read when we wake up and can't go to bed in the middle of the night. Those poets really didn't write, say, in a letter of French or Polish and so forth. They wrote in the language of images, in the language of sounds, in the language of lion breaks, of metaphors. They wrote because language was not enough. And they had to use these poetic devices and want new devices, new forms, collage them, change them, attack them, to express something that bothered them in the middle of the night when they also couldn't go to sleep. Those devices, all of them, are utterly physical, utterly bodily mechanisms. I remember being a young kid, not long after I first came to U.S., I didn't speak English too well, and I graduated from high school, went to college, and went to a wrong classroom. And ended up sitting on anthropology, 101, way beginning <laughs> of anthropology. And I remember the professor describing how once upon a time humans were a tribe on an African continent, and we didn't have a language yet, but we already had a group, and we already had shaman, and we already had fire. And according to that professor in that room, and my limited English, <laughs> the shaman made fire and then said, fire, 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 and so forth until he dropped. And the tribe stood in astonishment watching what had just happened. And according to that anthropological perspective, that was one of the first instances of not just communication, but of language enacting something into being. Poetry is not about an event. It is an event. And all those poetic devices that we have, uh, repetition is the one I just used, are much older than English literature, Russian literature, or any other. They are part of our bodies. So that would be one way to respond to your question. Another way to think about it would be, you mentioned deaf, deaf culture. There was an interesting experiment that was done when they put four hearing people in a room from different countries, say from Germany, United States, and France. And those people didn't speak each other's language. They locked them in a the room and left them for four hours. When they come back, People were just sitting in corners and looking at each other a little bit suspiciously. <laughs> and then they did the same thing, except they did it with deaf people who also did not speak each other's sign language. They locked them in a room for four hours and they come back. What happened was people were making up a new language. There is something about the language of science, the visual expression. When you take one sense away, other senses are heightened and amplified. And it also tells you something about the limitations of our wonderful, amazing, magical speech. Mm. Speech is beautiful, but it also limits us. And I think lyric poets especially are very aware of that. That also brings us back to the question of what is the relationship between the lyric and the body. Because lyric, unlike narrative, 
Camby, jag var i Dandelion, men också var i Valentin. Another way to answer your question would be um, more directly when you ask what does it mean uh, in terms of deaf culture. To my mind, there are many ways to speak about deaf culture. Uh, in our mainstream view of healing the world, we think that deaf people are all the same. But that is really certainly not true. There is deaf culture with a capital D, with its own language and its own history. Then there are people who are compared. But then there are also many other variations, say, deaf blind people. Uh, with tactile ASL in America, a new language that's been developed, only a few decades old. And there is a very positive region in the language that's only a few decades old, which is amazing. And from that perspective, I would say that disability in general, not just being hard of hearing or being deaf, which is not considered a disability by the culture, you should move out of the realm of the hospital into the realm of political minority. Talking about the body as well, your reading style, which feels somehow quite embodied. I was listening to Raymond Antrobus talking about your work on the um, Radio 4 book of the week I think he said you don't so much read your poems as sing them which is quite a good way of describing it I wondered if I don't know how you see the relationship between the written and speaking it or sort of embodying it are the two things very much connected is it important to you to say your poems aloud I think most poets when they write they say their poems aloud or at least wish for them aloud my relationship to the language I write in is the one of unrequited love. Uh, it's a strangest relationship to English. I am in awe of the language. I am in love with the language. It's not my native language. But sometimes a stranger can make love to the language a little better than the native person because <laughs> more can be seen as if for the first time. Of course, it can also be very awkward too. <laughs> but there is obvious and never-ending joy of just entering into the room where you have never been before. And that is pretty much my relationship to English. On the other side, a little more quote-unquote professional answer would be, if you're a poet, you have to do a lot of readings. In my case, I write very slowly, so I end up reading the same poems over and over for many years. And... Um, it's very easy to get bored. (laughs) So one way not to get bored is to simply change what you read. So what I read, I change line breaks, I change accents, I change emphasis. And that allows the reading to be a continuation of a writing process. I'm really not interested in performance simply because performance is fun when you do it one time, 25 times. But when you do it 125 times, it's foreign. Whereas writing can always give me room to improvise. How can I write it differently? And obviously I can change words even. If I try to do sometimes, there's a limitation on that. <laughs> but I can always change line breaks Yeah. and so forth. I love that idea that maybe more poets should do that. Each reading, they could adopt a different <laughs> accent or posture or just to liven things up. You know, historically, poets have done that. I'm thinking of Midrashic tradition, the idea of very 
Jewish tradition of revising the Bible, revising the Holy Text, the commentaries upon commentaries upon commentaries. Yeah. <laughs> but there is something amazing that the Holy Text is never finished. It is always a process. So we all know that poems are not finished, they are abandoned, but why abandon them? <laughs> Keep going, yeah. <laughs> That's great. In your essay on René Shah, which talks about the importance of mystery to poetry, you interject a comment about teaching, which I found really interesting. You said the problem for a typical practicing poet in the US today is that most of her colleagues, also practicing poets, happen to be college professors. Why is that a problem? Because the person who is employed as a teacher needs to explain things to others all day long. This activity of constant explaining of one's own art creates a kind of loss of mystery in art. That would fit also with poets in the UK. You know, it's very common for poets to be teachers. It struck me that this is an important thing to think about. How do poets who teach, and there's many brilliant poets who are teachers, how does that balance get struck? How do we maintain mystery whilst... And this podcast is maybe part of the problem because I'm asking you to explain your work in some ways. And I've been on the other side of it where you don't necessarily know how to explain the poem. If you did, it wouldn't exist. Yeah, I certainly teach myself on that. I say what I was trying to figure out how to deal with that. I don't claim not to have that same problem, but I would like to talk about it out loud. One of the dangers of... uh, Western conversation about literature is that so much is unsaid. We create a kind of homogenous society where everybody does the same thing. And uh, we are not homogenous at all. So why pretend to be? The problem with academia, academy, is not that we all teach, but that university has long become a corporation. And we are like Kafka's characters inside this big corporation trying to remain individuals. Because every poet, just by being a poet, is very much distinctly an individual. So why would we want to not be individuals and be corporate functionaries? That is something that I think needs to be talked about. Poets want to be teachers, fantastic, let's be teachers. But is it worth asking what is the relationship of our daily life to the mystery of our art? It is one of few arts where mystery does very much live in. Poetry, we are told in school, comes from, say, great epic told by a blind, oldest man, blind man, uh, about the narrative of the tribe. And that is true, but it is partly true. There were always wailing songs that women sang when they buried the dead, when they washed bodies of the dead before they buried them at ceremony. There were lullabies, there were whisperers, there were war songs of the tribes, sung before the tribe went into war. In other words, language was considered to have this additional capacity, not just a story. That is something that we are not told in textbooks. And that is what's talking about, that 
mysterious side of what we do. And uh, I don't mean to be a new age person here talking about mystery, but I want to ask questions. I think part of what we do is asking questions aloud. Which is why when a char is interesting to me, which is why Paul Salon is interesting, uh, Emner Bees Philip is interesting, and many, many other writers, because they don't just follow the given forms, but as how these forms open something up in our discourse. And if they don't, what can we open up in those forms? Yeah. I wanted to sort of finish by asking you quite a general question. You've said that you started writing in English after you came to the US. I just wondered what led you to poetry? Did you write poetry in Russian before that? Or did poetry come along with learning English? Was there a particular poet or writer that spoke to you? I wrote poetry in Russian in Odessa. I was 16, so 15, 14. I don't claim to have been writing great poetry <laughs> in Odessa at that time at all. But it was a time when country was falling apart, USSR was falling apart. It was the birth of a new nation, Ukraine. One of my poetry teachers was Ukrainian, Valentin Moros. Another was Russian, Yuri Mikhailik. And that time, it seemed perfectly normal. It was an international city, Odessa. Now, of course, Ukraine is at war precisely because Mr. Putin decided to use language as a pretext to invade another nation. So there is a whole other drama with that. But in my life, I came to the United States in '93, and I continued to write in Russian. Then it so happened that my father died, and he's the one that introduced me to books. Then obviously I had to respond to what was happening to process it as a 17-year-old boy at that time. But it felt wrong to write about his death in a language that he taught me. And I also felt it would probably hurt my family in a way. Because how do you put something like that and call it art? You know, the falseness of patterns. But being a human, I did need um, some kind of a way out into language. And so English was there, and it so happened that nobody in my family spoke it. I didn't speak it at all, really, either. So it became kind of an alternative world, if you will. And probably still is. To some extent, it is still an undiscovered room which I'm knocking on the door and maybe stepping in. But I like it that way. That's a really lovely way to think of it, like a sort of place to escape into that has just infinite things to discover. I guess I feel like that even though English is my native language. There's words every day <laughs> that I've never come across before. So I can really recognize that metaphor. You know, Emily, I absolutely agree with you when you say that even though English is your native language, you feel like you're entering into this new world when you put pen to paper. I think it's true for every great poet. I think Emily Dickinson couldn't write a proper English sentence for the life of her, mm -hmm. but she wrote so much better. She reinvented English. She, she taught English how to stand on its toes 
an attempt to speak in a language of American. <laughs> Poet has a slightly, slightly different perspective. Uh, sometimes more, sometimes less, but there's a certain strangeness. We take this language of the empire, which is English, it is truly is for centuries now, which is very strict language. We say English is a strict language, that's a sentence, right? In Russian, you can say strict language English is, mm. or is English strict language. It still makes total, complete sense to throw the worlds up in the air and then see how they land and say the same thing. In English, it's not possible. So our minds are taught to march like soldiers to the beat of only one way, one homogenous way for all of us, all of us. And for poet, that's not okay. <laughs> poet wants the way around. So any poet that you are likely to remember, whether following the tradition but feeling it without your emotion or writing mystery, or not following the tradition and seeing where it leads you, doesn't matter which way one takes, but this tension with the language is what wakes us up. Thank you so much. It's been really wonderful talking to you. Maybe we could have another poem to finish? Sure, sure. Um, any poem you, you like? This is a, actually a prose piece. It's a little paragraph at the start of Deaf Republic, and it's called Gunshot. Gunshot. Our country is a stage when soldiers march into town, public assemblies are officially prohibited. But today, neighbors flock to the piano music from Sony and Alfonso's puppet show in Central Square. Some of us have climbed up into trees. Others hide behind benches and telegraph poles. When Peter, the deaf boy in the front row sneezes, the surgeon puppet collapses, shrieking. He stands up again, snorts, shakes his fist at the laughing audience. An army jeeps verse into the square, disgorging its own surgeon. Disperse immediately! Disperse immediately, the puppet mimics in a wooden falsetto. Everyone freezes except Petya, who keeps giggling. Someone claps a hand over his mouth. The surgeon turns towards the boy, raising his finger. You! You! The puppet raises a finger. Sonia watches her puppet. The puppet watches the surgeon. The surgeon watches Sonia and Alfonso, but the rest of us watch Peter back, gather all the speed in his world, and launch it at the surgeon the sound we do not hear lift the cast of the water. Thank you so much. Um, readers can read Ilya's essay on René Shah, It Is Never Night When You Die, on the Poetry Society website. And there's also a review of Deaf Republic by Jifa Benson in the summer 2019 issue. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Poetry Society podcast. To find out more about the Poetry Society and how you can become involved, visit poetrysociety.org.uk.